It's Dr. Stu's podcast. With me, your host, Dr. Stuart Fishbein, community-based practicing obstetrician and longtime advocate for birth choices. And this is podcast number 203. And I'm virtually here with, as usual, the best co-host in the business and my dear friend, Bliss Young. How are you doing, Bliss? Pretty good this morning. Thank you. You look good. Thanks. You got smiling on, you got your hair down. It's great. <laughs> I put on a little makeup. <laughs> yeah. You got a bunch of pillows around your speaker? <laughs> I don't. I, I failed that today. You don't sound echoey to me, but... It's okay. We're, get, we're going pro, so we're going to get better and better. We are going to go pro, so that's exciting. So we've got things to talk about today, but before we do, um, right now, because of some uh, technical glitches, we're still not up on the uh, uh, your smartphone podcast app. But so you, sorry. You can find the podcast later on on rumble.com, and the, my handle is birthing instincts. The links will be up on my Instagram page, on the bio. There'll always be a link up there, and then there'll be links on Facebook as well. So you can find us there. You can write me at askdrstu at gmail.com. You can write bliss at uh, bliss at birthingbliss.com, and her website is birthingbliss.com, and her Instagram is at birthingblissmidwifery, and I'm at birthinginstincts, of course, and birthinginstincts.com. Okay, so we got that out of the way. And... Um, why don't you give us an update on some of the things that you're doing with your classes and things, Bliss? Because you've got a lot of stuff going on. I notice there's a lot of stuff going on. Yeah, you know, it feels like a really creative time, which is yes. fun. Yeah. I, I haven't felt creative in a while. So um, I did want to mention, I do, if you're local here in Los Angeles and you're a birth worker, I do have a couple of spots left in our Innate Journey Birth Worker Workshop, which is... Um, 10 to 6 this Sunday. You do have to get a COVID test. So if you're going to register, you got to do it today, probably. Um, and then um, I'm doing, I think I've mentioned it before. I'm sure I have. Um, I'm doing a Zoom chat with my clients um, once a week since isolation started because I felt like I really wanted to connect with them. And, you know, one of the really beautiful things about the sanctuary was that we were able to create community. So it's just been this thing that we've done every week um, and, you know, new clients come in, new mamas come in, then they birth and they go on their merry way. Um, they requested this week that I start a postpartum one. So I'm going to be doing that, but I'm now offering it to any pregnant mom um, anywhere in the world, really. Um, we've just moved it to Saturday. So it's Saturday. 10 a.m. Pacific Standard Time. Um, there's a series, a six-week series that'll be starting this Saturday that, you know, I can have unlimited amount of people on that. So there's definitely room. Um, and then I'll keep doing those. I'll keep offering them probably every couple of months. I'll start a new one. Um, and it's a time to create community. We do a little bit of meditation and um, journaling exercises, but it's a great way for people who maybe can't work with me because they're not local or, you know, because they can't necessarily afford a home birth or maybe, you know, they have a condition or something that enables them to not be able to do that or whatever their decision is, um, they can still get the benefits of having a community that's like-minded and um, talk about all of the beautiful ways that we can become more ourselves during this process of pregnancy. Great. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's the fascinating thing. You know, I've, all, I've thought about it. You know, I have this uh, Facebook page called Birthing Instincts Families, which I I almost forget, forget sometimes that I have it. Um, but I started it a long time ago, and I've got like almost 200 families on there. Oh, that's awesome. I need to use it more, though, because I, I really for, I forget to like share from all my other resources to that website. So got to start doing that because I think it's great. The sense of community is something we need. And, and then, well, the theme of my podcast, at least the title I gave to it yesterday when I was posting the, the, um, uh, you know, the invite to it was uh, it's the simple things. And I came up with it's the simple things because um, I don't know, last weekend I, I went to look at some property in Sedona, near Sedona, Arizona. And, and I went to the movies. Ugh, I'm so and, jealous. <laughs> I know it sounds really stupid, but going to the movies was one of my big favorite things to do. I used to live downtown, across from one of the Regal, Cinem uh, Regal Cinema's premier theater, and 
I would go two, three times a week. Sometimes I'd go, I'd see two movies in a day because it was just, I just loved doing it. And I, and to walk into that movie theater, even though you had a mask on when you walked in and there weren't a lot of people there and they socially distanced you in the theater, which was fine because it was not crowded, but the smell of the popcorn mm-hmm. and buying a popcorn. And I bought, I bought a large popcorn, not even a, a super, I bought the super large popcorn partly because I wanted to just give the theater some extra money Mm-hmm. And because I'm never going to eat that much, and I bought a, a large drink, mm-hmm. and I uh, went in and I bought the large popcorn so that through the entire movie I could eat one kernel at a time. <laughs> I, wouldn't to, I wouldn't have to wear my mask. But, uh, <laughs> I love it. No, it's true. But it was a simple thing. That I mean, I, I have to tell you, having that guys, I was so excited. I was talking to the guys behind the counter, mm-hmm. and like I was a little kid. And I felt like I was in a steak restaurant, too, because you know how I love steak. But having a bag of popcorn made in the movie theater was like having a great steak at Morton Steakhouse or something. I mean, it was just a thrill for me to do that. It was it was so I realized that. And then I've been doing, you know, I've been doing a lot of hiking lately and I get out on the trail and, um, you know, I just I noticed the, the, the quails or the or the birds or the hawks flying overhead. Um, a lot of them lately. You know, occasionally just, you know, sometimes on a hike, I'll see a rabbit or a squirrel and that's it. You know, occasionally I'll see a coyote or a deer. That's always fun. I have yet to see a mountain lion. I saw a bobcat on a trail, but, you know, it's just the simple things of looking at these things or hearing the, the silence. You know, I, I was looking around in that, in the desert there in, in Arizona and got out of my car at one place and was looking at something and there was no wind and there was no sound. Mm-hmm. Nothing. Mm-hmm. Joshua, not, a, not like an airplane, that. not a car, not a dog barking, nothing. And it was just fantastic for me. So, yeah, I, because because one of the things that you went on your survey yesterday, you were asking for subjects, and I sent one in to you. Okay, I don't know if you remember what I said. Remember what mm-hmm. I said? I said, how, no. do you, how do you prevent burnout? Oh, yeah. <laughs> We don't have to talk about that today. It's going to be a topic we'll come up with later on. But but that's one of the ways you can do it is you have to get out and get distracted by these other things. So that was great. And then we had a beautiful lunch together, um, you know, looking at our mood board and our pictures. Uh, Blitz and I had a photo shoot uh, for, our, for our new, for our new uh, branding, I guess it is, right? Mm-hmm. That's what yeah. It yeah. Yeah. And it was it was taken at a place where a lot of people get married was at this this ranch and so we're getting we're getting pictures taken of us and i think there's other people like walking by or driving by or something like that they i think they think that uh that it was like pre-wedding type stuff. <laughs> engagement that's where you keep your horses yeah it's where i keep my horses right? yeah it's a beautiful spot it's a beautiful spot uh mm-hmm. okay so that's that any births i did have a birth last week um primep mom um, did take our innate journey birth class, which is a great opportunity for me to get to know the dynamics of the family and the relationship a little bit deeper. So I was really appreciative for that because there was some complex dynamics with her mom and her sister, although they're absolutely delightful people. Um, they just recently lost her dad and there was just a lot of feelings and, um, the dad, the you know, the dad who was expecting the baby, um, really didn't want to kind of get pushed out by the dynamics of this close knit sisterhood family. And, um, so it was really good for me because it helped me be able to help them navigate. And I think as a midwife, I don't know, I don't know how you feel about this, Stu, if you feel like you get involved in the dynamics, but I know as a midwife, you know, we're not just there for the safety container, but we're also there for the, you know, anything that might interfere with this woman's ability to be able to have a physiologic birth. So, you know, the dynamics between family members or people who are there or calling or, you know, might show up um, can be something that I have to kind of work into, um, what I'm doing that day. And it was interesting because she called me, they called me uh, in the evening and said she had been having contractions after lunch that day. 
but they were far apart. And so they figured as a first time mom, they had a lot of time. And then after dinner, things started to really pick up for her. And she started to have contractions two to three minutes apart with bloody show. So what would you expect if that was happening, Stu? And the contractions were over a minute and this was happening for several hours. Contractions were over a minute long or a minute? Yeah. What would I Contraction, expect? Contractions were coming every two to three minutes, moving towards two, a minute or longer. And she yeah. was having a lot of bloody show. What would you assume? I would assume that she's in transition. Yeah, she's moving fast, right? Yeah. So I'm like, oh, she's moving fast. I should head over there. Luckily, she was only 10 minutes away from me. Um, and I wasn't sleeping well at home anyways, because I could just tell, well, I thought that she, she might go fast. Um, so I was like, I'll just come over. And so I came over and she continued to labor like that. And I slept on their couch and listened to the baby periodically. And she was still doing the exact same thing in the morning. So I was like, huh, let's check in and see what's happening. So I did a vaginal exam and she was a little bit thick and somewhere between five and six. And because I live so close to her, I was like, you know, I'm going to head home. I'm going to let you guys labor, you know, call me if something shifts. And uh, that was like 6 a.m., something like that. Around noon, he said, things are definitely intensifying. Great probably hitting transition. I'll come back over. Um, she didn't have her baby until 11 o'clock that night, but the pattern pretty much stayed the same the whole time. So eventually I did some, I helped them and I did um, some of the mile circuit and, you know, Rebozo work and like that, because you could tell that she was starting to feel a little discouraged because her contractions were so strong and close together. Um, anyways, she had absolutely beautiful, vaginal delivery, caught her own baby. I hope uh, we got some really beautiful video that actually made me weep when I looked at it the next day. Um, so hopefully we can get an edited version and I'll put it up on Instagram. Um, but it just shows you like labor is so interesting. You know, you think, you know, and then you don't know. Yeah. And, pri and primips are just, uh, they're just a harder thing to uh, figure out. Yeah. They just are. You no, know, yeah. back to your original question about the nurturing thing and about keeping the space mm -hmm. and thinking about that since you asked it. Um, I think keeping the space thing, I'm, I'm fairly good at and making sure that those things are around, but I can't compare to you guys when it comes to, you know, the whole nurturing thing or, or I, I forgot how you said, how you said it, but, but um, creating that, that environment or, or that whole thing during or afterwards, it's not my thing. That's why I've, you know, always felt, I've always tried to do that, but I've always sometimes felt a little awkward doing it because of just being male. And it's just, it's, it was, I mean, I, I have a nurturing side to me and everybody who's worked with me knows that, but I've also now, maybe because of burnout, maybe because I've been doing it too long, I, I or maybe just I'm wiser, I'm, I'm, I'm delegating that more to my students and to the midwife on my team or the midwives on my team, if it's twins. And speaking of twins, I have twins in, in early labor right now. She's 30, almost 38 weeks, a day or two shy. And uh, Vertex, Vertex, first time mom, prime hip, uh, broke her waters last night. And Where is she? She's down in Orange County. Mm -hmm. No, I, in no traffic, she was an hour and one minute, but I'm sure during the daytime, it'll be about an hour and 35 minutes to get down there. But she has a and midwife. She has a midwife that's local. So, mm -hmm. you know, whenever I do somebody that's far away now, I, I try to have a midwife that's local. If I have somebody in Riverside or if I have somebody in San Diego uh, or Temecula or those areas, we always try to have somebody down there. It just initially we didn't have that. We didn't have that option. But now but now we do because yeah. there's more and more people coming into the, uh, the Dr. Stu environment, <laughs> I guess. Uh, and so, yeah, so I have a midwife that's down and she's gonna, she's really good. I've done a, several sets of twins and breaches with her before. So I know that she'll call me when there's plenty of time. I spoke to her this morning and she's, uh, the mom's not contracting right now regularly. So we'll wait. So then she asked me the question, do you, you know, how do you, how long will you wait? What's your comfort zone? And I said, Psh, you know, my comfort zone is whatever the, the pregnancy and the labor tells us, um, 
you know, I had one set of twins go, uh, and who was a nurse, and she went six days with ruptured membranes. You remember that, right? Yeah. And she, yeah. Lived way, she lived way out in the Inland Empire. I kept having to drive out there, you know, every day to check on them, and I would do it. And she waited. That, you know, that was probably outside my comfort zone, but she had informed consent, and she was, uh, you know, um, smart, and she was a primate. And it's funny because like a week or two before that, I think, or was it after that her her sister gave birth to twins as well. So there are two sisters having twins two weeks apart. Um, I think I might have wrote it. I think there's a blog about that someplace. Nonetheless, mm-hmm. um, uh, that's probably outside my comfort zone, but I don't really have a, I don't have that 24 hour window. She's GBS negative. Nobody's going to do an exam on her. Uh, if she spiked a fever, that's a different story. If her blood pressure changes or some other thing changed, then that would change the story. But right now there's nothing pressing. So I would certainly do it nothing today. And then, uh, you know, if tomorrow uh, she's getting antsy or the husband's getting antsy or the team's getting antsy, we could talk about Castro. We could talk about doing some things, but, but, you know, normally we wait general rule, which I've seen, I have found to be true is that usually within 24 hours of rupturing membranes, 90% of women will go into labor on their own. So 94, I, I think. Yeah. I suspect that, uh, that this evening, I mean, she doesn't have any other kids, so it's not like a lot of our moms who are busy during the day. So she could go into labor this afternoon, but most likely it'll be tonight. She didn't sleep real well last night, which is not surprising. Mm-hmm. Combination of probably anticipation and excitement. So she hasn't had a lot of sleep? Not last night. Not the Today? last couple not the last couple of days. She says she hasn't slept well the last couple of days. Oh man, I would um I'd give her some Benadryl or some wine and make sure she gets some rest before things start. Okay. Yeah, she's gonna be tired. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. So that so that's um let's see, that's that. Um okay. So I have one dumb thing of the week. I'm gonna try every week to do uh something that my clients or somebody writes in tells me that's just dumb. And hopefully before you, before you do that, I want to say those of you who are joining us on the Zoom, um, if you have any questions in the chat that you'd like for us to answer, please make sure and um, go for it. You guys can totally be uh, sending your questions or saying hi to each other in the chat. Feel free. Yeah. Tell us okay. the dumb thing. Okay. So I, I saw a woman for the first time. She's 12 weeks pregnant and she came in for a second opinion because um, well, no, she's 20 weeks pregnant, but at 12 weeks, they discovered something called the placental lake. Mm-hmm. It's like a, it's like a echolucent area in the placenta that's fairly common, usually doesn't mean anything. It's not a, a problem, but she was told at that time that she should not pick up anything heavier than a milk carton, a gallon of milk, and she should not walk her dog. And this was by a nurse practitioner and the doctor didn't countermand it or anything like that. So, you know, um, I just, I just have to, you know, she tells me this stuff and I'm thinking that somebody actually looked at her in the face and said this to her as a serious warning or as a serious guideline. Right. First of all, I don't, I've never heard anything about Venus lakes being a, re, a risk of, of, of bleeding. And because they told her that there's a risk of bleeding from that. And then I thought logically, like, well, how would the blood in a venous lake make it outside of the uterus? How can that possibly happen? And it really can't. It's like. So can you describe the difference between a venous lake and a subchorionic hemorrhage? Yeah, subchorionic hemorrhage is, beneath, is, is outside the, the, the baby's environment. It's behind the placenta. Between so the uterus and the placenta, right? Dissect its way out and around. Okay. Mm-hmm. Venus Lake is just a uh, just a pool or a slight anomaly of the placenta, which again is fairly common. It would it's probably more common than breech birth. So, you know, more than three percent of placentas probably have a venous lake. So it's not even a big deal. So it, what you're saying is it's inside of the sac. It's in the placenta. With baby, so it wouldn't be able to come through the yeah. vagina. Yeah, it's in the placenta. It's on the mem- on the fetal side of the placenta. Mm-hmm. And not only that, when I saw her for the second opinion, it wasn't there anymore anyway. Mm-hmm. Okay. But so for, for, for several weeks, she had, she'd been afraid to lift anything or take her dog for a walk. And it was, so that's, I think we're going to try to 
make that like a like a weekly a segment. Just a really brief little thing. You know, there used to be a Facebook page called um, uh, "Your OB Said What" or something like that. I think I don't know if it's still out there. If anybody knows, they can let me know if it's still out there. But yeah, we say the dumbest things. You know, there used to be a TV show called "Kids Say the Dumbest Things" or "Kids Say the Darndest." Darndest things, right? <laughs> darndest things. Well, now we, you know, I mean, we have medical professionals in all aspects of our medical life now saying the darndest things, and yeah. darndest, darndest is a really nice way of saying idiotic, don't you think? Yeah, we we used to say things a lot nicer back then. <laughs> yeah, well, we have a lot of uh, euphemistic terms now that we use, where we or we've changed the terminology, so we don't we don't want to offend anybody like even when we got when used to be intrauterine growth retardation okay and we changed that to intrauterine growth restriction because i guess somebody was could confuse retardation with mental retardation even which though, we don't say either anymore no i know but retardation yeah. so then therefore we could get, we could go back to iugr then i mean we could go back to retardation because it doesn't imply mental retardation it implies retardation means slowing up slowing down that's what mm -hmm. it means to mm -hmm. retard something but now you can't say that. Right. I had a I had a consult. Well, actually, it was the winner of my, you know, I got 5,000 Instagram followers. So we did this fun little um, promotion. And we had one person who won all these great things from some of my um, affiliates. And um, so I did a an hour, like, consultation with her yesterday. She could kind of talk to me about whatever she wanted to talk about. And she's planning a hospital delivery. She's from Canada. She'd actually really love to do a home birth, but they didn't really totally understand how the system worked here. And she, you know, they just didn't have enough time to save up the money to be able to pay out of pocket for something like that. They have an HMO. So we had a really great talk, but she's 35. Maybe she's just over 35. And her doctor, she's 35 weeks. Her doctor is doing weekly NSTs. Yep. On a 35-year-old woman who's got absolutely no other risk factors, concerns, no anomalies, and IPT was great, ultrasound was great. So, you know, I tried the best I could to kind of inform her about where that could lead her, but that was difficult. Yeah, it is. And he'll probably want to induce her at 39 weeks, too. Yeah, that's what I was trying to be like. Just so you know, I want you to be aware about this. <laughs> okay, I will look at the chat if you had a topic you wanted to jump into. I got two, I have two topics related to breach that I wanted to get to today. And then I'm hoping we have time because I have a really good article in the Green Journal. Well, not a really good article, a good article for our purposes in the Green Journal regarding the vaccine and OBs and what we're supposed to be, how, you know, the information for OBs and how to sort of, uh, advise our clients about the vaccine. And, and I think it's really important because this is, it's becoming more and more prevalent now that everybody's getting their vaccines and, and uh, you know, there's a lot of information out there. A lot of it's true and labeled as misinformation. A lot of it's untrue and labeled as good information. And people have no idea anymore what's real and what isn't real, but let's get, yeah. Since you just talked about your 35 week or getting tested every week, here's a here's a paper that came out of um, let's see where did it come out of oh Oxfordshire, Oxfordshire in the United Kingdom, and it's called the impact of a routine late third trimester growth scan, and the incidence diagnosis and management of breach presentation in Oxfordshire UK. All right, and just again I'm going to summarize these things, but I'm just going to say it says. Uh, external cephalic version is a safe procedure that reduces term breach presentation. That's true. Uh, a barrier, a principal barrier to ECV is failure to diagnose breach presentation. Also true. Failure to diagnose breach presentation also leads to emergency C-section or unplanned vaginal breach birth. Also true. Recent evidence suggests that undiagnosed breach might be eliminated using a third trimester scan our aim was to evaluate the impact of introducing a routine 36-week scan on the incidence of breach presentation and undiagnosed breach presentation, okay? Yep. Okay, so they did look at this, but they, they um, nothing in here, and of course it's not within their scope, but it probably should have been mentioned in the 
discussion area that there's the what what are the risks and benefits of doing a routine third trimester scan right what are right. the neg what are the negative things about doing a third trimester scan and we've talked about those before things like oh your baby's too big oh your baby's on the smallish side oh the fluid is lowish and you're finding things that you would never find otherwise and then you're intervening upon them or or even planting just planting seeds of fear or doubt in the patient because you've done a scan that otherwise would not have been necessary. Now that wasn't mentioned in here. And maybe that's more prevalent in the United States than the UK. Maybe these are just doing by, by text and, and I don't know, but I always, I'm worried when you do an unnecessary test. But again, in the, in, the, in the face of a study to find out if it made any difference, okay. I just think they should make sure when they're giving informed consent that they tell people these sorts of things. Um, so this was, all, this was pregnant women in a single uh, OB unit between 37 weeks and 42 weeks and six days. So isn't that interesting? Yes. Okay, you wouldn't find that study being done in the United States. Especially not California. Well, yeah, they don't let anyone go to 42 weeks and six days pretty much anywhere in the United States, do they? Well, Oregon, the standard of care, as far as I knew a couple of years ago, maybe it's shifting, was 43. Was it? Oh, great. Well, that's good to know. All yeah. right. So the singleton non-anomalous fetus over a four-year period, in the first two years, they didn't do this ultrasound or routinely. And in the second two years, 99% of the people that came in got this 36-week ultrasound. So they compared the two years before they instituted the policy and the two years after they introduced the 36-week scan. There were 27,825 pregnancies in the study, which is a good number. 14,444 before, 13,381 after, so pretty good balance. Uh, the incidence of breech presentation at birth did not change significantly in either group. So even though you're, they were picking it up more, which they did pick it up more, um, the rate of undiagnosed breech birth before labor reduced from 22% down to 5%. But even though they, they diagnosed it more, it didn't change the rate of vaginal, uh, of the uh, breach presentation at birth. Mm -hmm. So it wasn't necessarily because they were intervening that changed anything. A lot of those babies at 36 weeks would have probably turned on their own. Is what I suspect what, what would have happened. Vaginal breach birth rates fell from 10% to 5%. So by doing this study, and finding breech babies, they, they, the women that might have gone into labor and not known they had a breech until it was too late to do anything about it, ended up right. getting either a version or a section. So I'm not sure that that's a plus either. Um, Non-significant increases in elective C-section rates and decrease in emergency C-section rates for breech babies were seen. So the change in C-section rate based on the study was, was negligible in either, in either group. So they said in a universal 36-week scan policy associate, um, was associated with a reduction in the incidence but not elimination of undiagnosed term breach birth down from 15, or excuse me, from 22 down to four, five. But there was no reduction in the incidence of breach presentation at birth, despite a comprehensive ECV service. So in other words, what they're saying is, is that the 36-week scan really didn't change anything. In well, it, it did more interventions. It caused more interventions, including the ultrasound, which, as you mentioned, doesn't the study doesn't talk about what are the downsides of having done that. Right, and it, it did more interventions. You had you had uh, more ECVs, obviously. You probably had um, slightly more C sections for breach, but that rate wasn't statistically significant. But so again. There, there may be in our in our view, from our perspective of birth, there may be more downside to doing an elective thirty six weeks scan. Plus, nothing in here. There's nothing in here about Leopold's maneuver, or you know, did they compare of those people that were undiagnosed? Like, did they actually put hands on them? Did they were they missed, or were they just coming in, going through the routine, and nobody's really even checking? Don't know. Right. Yeah. Okay. End of that one. Just put it out there. This one, I really, this one's a good one because it supports a lot of what I've said. This is from France and it's uh, a research and it's also uh, from the Green Journal, which is uh, 
this journal here, which everybody knows that is like the American top journal. And uh, it's called First Twin in Breach Presentation and Neonatal Mortality and Morbidity According to Planned Mode of Delivery. Make sense? Yeah. So if you have a breach first twin, essentially are they're comparing, should we section them or should we do them vaginally? And I'll just tell you that um, this was conducted in 176 French hospitals. Inclusion criteria of the twin birth study, which was a study that came out several years ago, except for the fact that the first twin was breached, was, were the same. So in other words, both fetuses had to be alive. The birth weights had to be between 1,500 and 4,000 grams. That would be beyond 32 weeks. And then the primary outcome was a composite of neonatal mortality and morbidity. And they found that of the 1,467 women with a breach presenting first twin, 79.7% um, had a planned cesarean and 20.3% planned vaginal births, of whom 62% were successful. Okay. The neonatal mortality and severe morbidity rate for the first twins was 1.7% in the planned vaginal birth and 1.9% in the planned cesarean birth. So no difference, okay? So they had a success rate of 62% and they had no difference in neonatal morbidity or mortality. So their conclusion was, although our sample size precluded a robust assessment, which classic in these studies because there just aren't enough. Um, let's see. Uh, in twin presentations in which the first twin was breached presentation in our cohort plan vaginal delivery was not associated with higher neonatal mortality or morbidity for either twin. Love it. Right. So yeah. I wanted to break this down a little bit because, because it is important and people who have uh, a, a breach first twin are going to have a hard time in the United States finding anybody to support it. But there is evidence that you can, that it's not unreasonable in skilled hands. So asking for it, traveling for it, you know, doing something to try to get it if it's important. One of the things they didn't cover in this study whatsoever that I noted was they didn't, what would have been really interesting would have been outcomes of babies in subsequent pregnancies for all the women that were in this study. Mm -hmm. Right. So comparing the outcomes of the babies who had a vaginal delivery with the first baby to outcomes of babies whose, women, whose moms had a cesarean section for the first baby and, and just see, because we know based on Rixafreeze's data and stuff like that, that, that everything you gain by doing a section for a first baby breach, whether it's a singleton or a twin, you lose if, if the woman plans to have a second pregnancy. Okay, so according to the guidelines of the National College of French Gynecologists and Obstetricians, to plan a vaginal delivery for singletons in breech presentation as well as for twin pregnancy with first twin in breech presentation, it is recommended that the following criteria be met. And then we talked about the criteria. They do uh, CT pelvimetry, but of course all academic institutions do that. Even Dr. Lewin, the luminary from uh, Frankfurt, Germany, who does a lot of the breech papers, um, they do that. That's the way they do things. In our world, we just, you know, we talk about, um, uh, you know, what I talk about, I say a, a woman's pelvis is adequate if she hasn't been run over by a truck. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. So, but, they, but everything else is about the same. Women's get informed consent. And finally, what's really interesting is the type of breach presentation, complete or frank, and the presentation of the second twin are not taken into account in the decision of the planned mode of delivery in our country. So the first twin doesn't have to necessarily be in a proper frank or breach position. It could be incomplete breach, could be footling breach, I suppose, and they're going to give it a try and see what happens. It's pretty, pretty spectacular. That is. Um, exclusion criteria were monoamniotic twins, which are really rare. Uh, women who've undergone fetal reduction surgery say they had triplets and they, went, they decreased to twins. Uh, any fetal anomalies, that sort of thing previous uh, cesarean surgery, um, substantially larger twin B than twin A. I don't know what substantially larger means. And fibroids in the lower uterine segment, or of course, placenta previa were, were exclusions. The group with planned cesarean delivery was chosen as the reference because it is the mode of delivery recommended by the American College of Obstetrics and Gynecologists and the Royal College of American of Obstetrics and Gynecologists. Okay. So 
Anyway, enough. I don't have to say anything about that, do I? Do I? Uh, well, you were you were hitting yourself in the head so we could see it here on Zoom, but not in the actual audio podcast. <laughs> yeah, I don't need to say anything more. It's that the motive recommended. Look at there's, there's this is not the first article that supports breach first twin delivery. Yet, the American College recommends cesarean section. American College also recommends coronavirus vaccine in pregnancy, which if we have time, we're going to get to that too. We'll I see. hope so. Um, okay, so that's that. Moving on. So it says here, I, you know, I go through these things early and I highlight the stuff that's important. So neonatal mortality was assessed during the first 28 days of life and neonatal morbidity was defined as one or more of the following. A five-minute APGAR score less than four, birth trauma, which is a fractured humerus, skull fracture, spinal cord injury, brachial plexus injury, subdural intracerebral hemorrhage, encephalopathy, seizures, endotracheal ventilation within 72 hours, sepsis, okay? Then they get into the materials and methods section, which I tell everybody they, they must read if they're looking at a paper. And I'm not gonna read it to you because it's really a statistical gobbledygook here, but they actually, it seems, very, it seems very impressive to me. If I read one paragraph to you, I would lose my entire audience. I don't really wanna do that. Okay, but it seems uh, intensive and, act, and therefore accurate. And in the results, they said they compared with women with planned cesarean delivery, those with planned vaginal deliveries were more often Paris, which means they'd already had one birth, which we've talked about many times, you and I, about the difference between multips and primips. And without any previous cesarean births, um, they had pregnancy complications and induced labor and delivery before 37 weeks of gestation less often. It's an interesting way of saying it. I think that that's probably, you know, this is from France. You and I would say they have less um, pregnancy complications, but this, they say they have pregnancy complications and induced labor and delivery before 37 weeks of gestation less often. Mm -hmm. So, you, you know, I'm waiting for the less often part and it's at the end instead of the beginning. And more often gave birth in level three university hospital maternity units and in facilities with high numbers of annual twin deliveries. So familiarity with twins is important. Yeah, unfortunately, skills. Unfortunately, we're running out of places that have familiarity with twins. Uh, let's see. Well, they had one case of interlocking twins occurred in the planned vaginal delivery group at 37 weeks, indicating, uh, indicating the need for an emergency cesarean delivery. The first twin had severe neonatal morbidity because of an APGAR score less than four at five minutes. The five minute APGAR score of the second twin was nine. Both twins were discharged home on day seven. The reason I point that out is because they clearly have not read Dr. Stu's maneuver for a head entanglement for breach first twins. Obviously. So hopefully they're going to watch this podcast and then they're going to read it. And then that won't have any more of those interlocking twins occurring, causing emergency cesarean delivery. They found that planned vaginal delivery was not associated with an increased risk of neonatal mortality and morbidity compared with planned cesarean delivery, not for the first baby and also not for the second baby. Okay. So, because breach presentation was an exclusion criteria in the twin birth study, our results present the highest quality evidence thus far published and provide new arguments supporting planned vaginal delivery in twin pregnancies and breach presenting first twins. The global neonatal mortality and morbidity rate after planned vaginal delivery in this analysis is similar to the rate previously reported in a low-risk population uh, when the first twin is in the cephalic presentation. So they found no difference between first twin breach and first twin cephalic, or first twin breach by vaginal or by cesarean. Okay. Yeah. Uh, to inform women and make a, a shared decision concerning the planned mode of delivery and uh, the absence of neonatal benefits associated with planned cesarean delivery in this study further emphasizes the reported increase in short-term and long-term maternal and infant associated with planned cesarean delivery. So they do mention that there could be some long-term risks um, associated with planned cesarean delivery, but they don't. And then they just give their references. They don't really go into it. So I just found that really interesting. Um, and then they, of course, end with the same conclusion that almost all my papers end with too, which is 
Applying these results to practitioners who may have lost or never learned the skills required for vaginal breech delivery and to residents during their initial formation, initial formation requires investing in the teaching of obstetric maneuvers because simulation training has shown a positive effect in a singleton vaginal breech delivery by residents and in breech second twin extractions. This pedagog pedagog pedagogical strategy should also be considered for training for vaginal delivery of first twins in the breech presentation. And uh, women should be given and consider this option and, uh, and they should, if they have to, they should consider traveling. To France. No, or, or to, <laughs> you know, to, uh, you know, to Barry Brock at Cedars or to, you know, yeah. somebody who's willing to do it. If you have to, you know, we've had women come from Colorado and from Idaho and from Oregon come down. Alaska. Yes. And, and mm -hmm. well, not for breach, but yeah, for an abnormal presentations like that or twins. And I'm not saying that these people should do it at home. That's not what we're saying. We're not saying that at all. As a matter of fact, I mean, they, you know, I'm pretty much the only choice I think of doing it at home. And the only reason that women, well, not the only reason, but probably a big reason why women are choosing to do it at home is because nobody's offering it in the hospital. Right. It's a leap to go from having a hospital birth to suddenly having a breach first twin home delivery. That's a big, big leap. And a lot of people financially, emotionally, just can't wrap, they can't wrap their head around it. And uh, yeah. there should be more choices for them. And this is just another paper that will be completely ignored by the American and British colleges, period. Boom. I'm glad you reviewed it though. That was really interesting. Thanks. Mm -hmm. Okay, so um, real quick story about simple things. Um, my son, uh, we were talking about some of the lockdown stuff and we had a really good conversation last night. My son, Alex called and we just, he, you know, we, we haven't had enough talks. We just don't, don't talk that much anymore. So we just haven't had that. And he said, when, during, you know, when he used to live in a, you know, in, he used to go play at this park. And when he was during the lockdown, he would go to the park to play and like shoot baskets and things like that. And eventually what happened is the city came in and they took away the hoops. Yeah. Okay. I mean, they took away the hoops. So this wasn't, you're outdoors, you're playing basketball, and they took away the hoops. This is about punishment. Well, it's about limiting opportunities for sure. Yeah. So they think they want you to stay inside and wear a mask, which is like the least healthy thing you can do for your immune system. Right. Yeah. And the, and the, the simple joy of kids going to the park and playing basketball was taken away. By, or kids know. going to the park at all. I mean, yeah. they well, locked down all the yellow tape. They had yellow tape around. Yeah. Closed. Closed. In Hawaii, they had, I don't know if you've seen that orange kind of um, diagonal stretchy, you can use it for fencing and stuff. They, they, they wrapped that around the picnic tables. <laughs> so you couldn't, you couldn't sit at the picnic tables. And I was like, they're totally distanced from one another. They're outside, you know, um, it's just so sad. Yeah. Even, really even sad. like at, even at like the Ralph's grocery store where I go locally, um, they have tables outside and they haven't completely covered in plastic. I was there yesterday and, and they're uncovered and people were sitting there eating. It was Imagine yeah. progress. Yeah. Progress. It's the simple things. <laughs> the simple things. <laughs> really the things, the simple things that bring us joy. Exactly. Okay. So, you know, Bliss, I don't know. You sent me something and I don't, I don't know if you want to talk about it at this point or not. Why not? That, uh, the um, video that you sent me? Yeah, why not? And Chris Crutch, is that his name? That's his handle anyway. Say, spell it. Chris Crutch, C-H-R-I-S-C-R-U-T-C-H. Uh-huh. Right. I don't know who he is. He says he's an, he's an actor or he's in the Hollywood industry, but he put out a really good video. Yeah, it's very, very informative. It's long, it's about 45 minutes, um, but it's very, well laid out. And as you would say, it's, you know, it uses a lot of common sense 
but it also uses, um, you know, how people say that we're not listening to science. He talks a lot about the science as well, but in a way that people can really, really hear it, you know? Yeah, I think, I think, I, I think about the things that I've been saying over the weeks we've been going through this. And then I think that, that he has taken pretty much everything that I said and just says True. it better. <laughs> it just says it where I think my, I think young people will listen to him. Yeah. Because he's, he's also black, which is, you know, I, I feel like it makes him approachable to a particular demographic, which is really great too. You know, um, it's unfortunately, Stu, the white, the white male um, in the upper classes has gotten a bad, you know, a bad rap in the last um, bit of time. So it, there's a skepticism even in listening to white males right now. So I'm I, not, I, not a white male. You're not? I'm declaring myself a Pacific Islander today. All right, I'm 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 Pacific Islander. Next week I'll be uh, I'll be of Chinese descent, but <laughs> I don't think that's going to go over well. No comment. Anyways, let's talk more about Chris Chris's video. Well, I have a whole thing in here in the Green Journal I wanted to get to too, but I thought you you might did you watch the whole thing? I did watch the whole yeah, thing. I watched. Um, the whole thing. Yeah, he says he says everything that we've been saying about it is that that the chance of being injured by this vaccine when you're under 30 or under 50 or even under 60 is so minimal. And we know so little about the vaccine and we, and we're told whether it's misinformation or it's, you know, it's, it's completely, it's, it's leaving out information on purpose, which can is the same thing as misinformation. Um, we're not told the, how this vaccine works, what it can do, we're, we're given numbers like 95% effective rate, but, but it really isn't a 95% effective rate. All right. It's a, that's a relative change in the rate, not the actual change in the rate. So, you're, you know, again, I've talked about this many times, the difference between relative risks and actual risk. And, and if you don't know what the denominator is, you have no idea what relative risk means. So 95 sounds really good, you know, but if it went from, you know, a, a 3% success rate, to a 6% success rate, that's a 100% increase in, in efficacy, even though it's still 94% ineffective. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So but, you know, I think he really goes into how the vaccine, quote unquote, vaccine is actually working, which I found really interesting because I think he spelled it out in a way that made a lot of sense to me. And talking about that this is not how a traditional vaccine works, that they're actually the vaccine itself is biotechnology, which I think, you know, you start to really think about that and consider what the ramifications are for that. And then he talks specifically about the infertility potential issue that a lot of doctors are talking about that is not given in um, its weight and true informed consent. He talks about how a lot of this is simply marketing um, and that we've been marketed to, which I absolutely would agree with. And he talks about how your immune response normally works and how immunity, when you get a vaccine, especially specifically how this vaccine works, is very different than when you get natural immunity. And I think a lot of people don't understand that. Right. And what it had me thinking about is how, and I've said this before, but how similar a lot of these um, logical conversations are that parallel how we as birth workers feel about a lot of what's happening in the industrial, the medical industrial complex. Let's just take something like Pitocin. Pitocin is supposedly, right, a synthetic form of oxytocin. So you tell someone it works exactly the same as Pitocin does, I mean, as oxytocin does, then your mind thinks, well, there can't be any downsides to it, right? Used judiciously to stop bleeding in a woman who could die from bleeding is a great use of Pitocin. But if you're using it on all women and not considering what does that do to your body when you give it a synthetic form of a hormone what happens? What is the ramifications of that? And they've connected it to things like postpartum depression. Your receptors aren't working the way that they normally do. How does that affect other things in your body? 
And I don't think we're going to know the long-term effects of this vaccine for a long, long time. And the, the other thing that it had me thinking about was if 99% of people would not have died without a vaccine or a mask is what he's talking about. And these people are getting the vaccines and there could be some major um, issues with them if they do get exposed to it naturally. How are we going to know that for a long time? Because the percentage is so small anyways. Well, anybody um, the vaccine right now is, being, is, is, is a guinea pig. Yep. And that's how you should think of it. You yep. are a guinea pig. You are going to be, you're going to be tracked. I think you, I think I, I, he said something about you agree to be tracked for two years. I don't know that. I don't know. I haven't gotten it. So I don't know if you have to sign something or if they have, a, they, they give you the they give you the ability to call you or check in on you and stuff like that. Or if you have supposed to fill out things on, by email or whatever, I don't know, but you're a guinea pig. They want to know how you did. Okay. Wouldn't they, wouldn't you want to know that before you took it, especially when you're in a very low risk group? And you wouldn't you want to know if you're in a high risk group, if you take it, what's it going to do to you if you do get exposed down the road to the real, to the real uh, virus? And would you have antibody dependent enhancement? Will you have some sort of reaction or path? Are you pathogenically primed now, as he says, where um, this, this vaccine that they're using, which isn't really a vaccine at all, you're right. What it does is it triggers, it inserts the messenger RNA into the cell, which then triggers your body to make a protein, which is basically called a spike protein, which becomes, which is essentially what's on the code of the virus. So have you ever seen a picture of the virus with these little things, you know, they put it on all the news shows with the little red virus with the little pretty colored, rose colored virus with the little things coming out of it. It makes the protein so that your body will then attack that protein, but it's really not making it's not doing the same thing that when you used to get, when you give like measles vaccine where you're giving attenuated live virus or something like that and your body then takes it. He calls it where it's, it's, it's enveloping it, but it's not necessarily attacking. I forgot the two words he used mm-hmm. or one where, where it was just like one. Yeah. There was one where it was therapeutically doing something to you and the other one where it's just sort of coating it and, and like hugging it. And he, he, <laughs> he uses these body language things. He's very good. So watch it. <laughs> yeah, I would suggest everybody watch it. I think uh, either Bliss or I will put the link up um, on our Instagram pages. I might have Emily put it up in my link in my. Uh, yeah, I'd like to put I'd like to put the link up for the um, article that you talked about too, if there's a way of doing that. But um, I wanted to make sure that we which mentioned are, today which are. for those people who don't know, um, and he mentioned it in this video. There's a. Um, a website called VAERS, V-A-E-R-S dot org, I believe. Yep. Um, right? Yeah, it's a vaccine um, adverse event reporting system. Right. It's a tough website to navigate. And they say, he says only 1% of uh, adverse reactions get reported. I've heard anywhere from 1% to 10%, but still, even if it's low, you have to yeah. multiply everything you see there by a factor of either 9 or 99. Right. Yeah. But... You know, we're about informed consent. We're not anti-vaxxers. We're about informed consent. So before you go and get a vaccine, make sure that you inform yourself. Go look at this website and look at what are some of the side effects that are being reported already in two months. Um, Listen to people like him who are talking about this information who don't have, you know, um, they're not getting money from doing this. So they don't have a, like a, interest in it. So just make sure that you inform yourself before you take the risk of a vaccine that hasn't been tested on animals or people. So that's, um, that's all I wanted to say about that. Yeah. So we're going to run out of time, but I'm just going to, I mean, I, I, maybe I'll save this for next time um, yeah, because there's way too, much, way too much on here. So let's just save this because I mean, this, this subject is not going to go away. And we, and then maybe I'll make that the primary thing for next time, unless something else comes up that's even, even better. And, and what I'd like to do, because it's the simple things today, and I've been meaning to do this for about three podcasts now. Um, there was a song that I heard in my car one day, 
several weeks ago. And it just struck me as, are we ever going to go back here? Are we ever going to get back here? I mean, it's a song from the, I think it's from the 70s. It's by Chicago and it's called Saturday in the Park. And everybody, mm -hmm. I'm not going to sing it, so you don't have to watch. Uh, Darn. You don't have to make <laughs> your thing. But I'm going to go through some of the lyrics and just think about these things and how they relate to today. All right. Starts out Saturday in the park. I think it was the 4th of July. Saturday in the park. I think it was the 4th of July. People dancing, people laughing. A man selling ice cream. Singing Italian songs. All right. Well, is he wearing a mask? Is he not wearing a mask? Is he spreading particles as he's singing? Aren't we supposed to not sing in church? Aren't we supposed to like, I mean, think about that, how you could be, how cynical and sarcastic you could be. Can you dig it? Yes, I can. And I've been waiting such a long time for Saturday. Another day in the park, I think it was the 4th of July. Another day in the park, I think it was the 4th of July. People talking, really smiling, a man playing guitar and singing for us all. Will you help him change the world? Can you dig it? Yes, I can. And I've been waiting such a long time. Slow motion riders fly the colors of the day. A bronze man still can tell stories his own way. Think about that. A bronze man still can tell stories in his own way. Well, which stories will be approved? Which stories will he be allowed to tell? What if he's Dr. Seuss? All right. Six of Dr. Seuss's books are being banned. All right, mm -hmm. for imagery that, uh, you know, that's inappropriate. When Dr. Seuss himself was a person against racism, all right, if you ever read the story on the Sneetches, you know the story of the Sneetches? I'm some sure Sneetches, that I do. Some Sneetches have a star on their chest, mm -hmm. other ones don't. Mm -hmm. And so they compete with each other and then they make machines that want to, they put stars on the chest, but then the ones that get stars on the chest, they find out that it's no more fashionable to have stars on your chest anymore. So then they have to go get them erased and that, and they actually find out that they're all the same. And it doesn't matter if you have a star on your chest or you don't have a star on your chest. Okay. And these kind of books are going to be, are now being banned. So a bronze man still can't tell his stories his own way. Hmm. Listen, children, all is not lost. All is not lost. Oh no, no. I agree with that. It's not lost, but, but it, you know, but what, what, what was it? Ben Franklin said, uh, uh, we're only one generation away. It's, it's a democracy if you can keep it. And we're only one generation away from, you know, losing our rights or losing our liberty, something like that. Funny days in the park and every day is the 4th of July. Funny days in the park and every day is the 4th of July. People reaching, people touching, a real celebration, waiting for all, us all. If we want it, really want it, can you dig it? Yes, I can. And I've been waiting such a long time for the day. Okay. So I finally got that out. But isn't that, you know, simple song. If you know the, if you know the tune, it's just, you can't help but. Saturday in the park. I think it was the 4th of July. I know it. Yeah. And you can't help but feel good when you hear it. It's true. I'm going to listen to it when we're done. So we need to go back to an era and a time when that's it. I think it's coming. Uh, apparently, Texas opened up yesterday, which yeah. is great. So that's good. Well, I, you know, one of the things I would tell you as a grieving mother is yeah. that you can never go back. We can go forward. And we're, we're going to be changed from this. And we can choose how we want to be changed from this. And I love that the topic today is simple things because, you know, when we are back together, it's really being present for those moments of touching and laughing and seeing somebody smile at you and being able to sit across the table from your family members and share a holiday because that really is what makes life. And I've been telling my clients, you got to get out there. You got to live. You know, you got to find ways to live your life um, because that's what it's all about. So we need to move forward in a way that we can really love each other. Yeah, I think about Sky a lot, as a matter of fact. I do. And I think that yeah, uh, too. it's really important that we get out there and we hug our kids and we hug our parents while they're still alive. Yeah. And we treat them nicely because you can't take it back sometimes, some of the things that you say to your parents. 
and then they're or, or your neighbors or whoever, yeah. you know, and, and can't take it back. And then they're gone. And then yeah. it hurts you for a long time. Yeah. Right. So again, everybody, thank you for listening. We've, you know, we're still here. Amy, Bethany, Bree, Elizabeth, Jennifer, JG, Nicole, and a couple of you who came and left. We, we really appreciate you being here live with us. We know that an hour of your time every day is, or every week is valuable. And that the fact that you spend an hour with us every, every week, we're very honored to be that. We hope we can continue to provide you with some insight and keep it interesting for you. And until next time, uh, this has been Dr. Stu's podcast, number one, uh, 203. Oh my God. And uh, you can, <laughs> again, you can write to me at askdrstu at gmail.com. You can write to bliss at bliss at birthingbliss.com. And anything else, Bliss? Anything you want to say? It's raining in, it's raining in Los Angeles. Talk about simple things. So if you're in LA, enjoy the rain today and we'll see you next week. Bye-bye. Well, I, haven't, I haven't been outside, but I can hear the cars going by and it's like splishing and splashing. I know, it's so lovely. All right, see you all, see you all until next week. Bye-bye. Okay, bye-bye.